This week on Punch Mountain, a movie from 1982 about the dangers of not reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. Thank God we're so awesome at learning lessons from action movies. Fill it up with premium because we're watching The Road Warrior. Punch Mountain starts now. Welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies, not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake. I'm joined, as always, by Mr. David Hada, the road warrior. <laughs> That's very good. That's right. I'm like a Ziggy comic, Mac. David, no joke. This week I was driving on the highway at night, you know, 80s style, like, no fate, but will we make it? Just pump into some synth. And then a car boom, like zooms past me. And my first thought is, am I driving really slow? But no, I was driving 60. And then another car zoomed past it too. And I almost think they didn't have their lights on, just doing a bunch of like crazy night driving. And David, sometimes when cars drive past you super fast, do you ever have the thought like, well, they'll get into an accident one day, as if you're patting yourself on your head for being like, I'm a good boy who drives the speed limit. Of course. 30 seconds later, I see that car crunched against the side of the road. Oh my gosh. Not to where the point where anyone's like hurt. Just like they spun out and crashed their car. That's very satisfying, then. It was satisfying. <laughs> what a good little driver you are. Yeah, I know. He probably spilled his uh, can of Prime. Isn't that uh, like Jake Paul's energy drink or something? Primo, what's it called? Is it time for this country to end or just for me to shut up? We'll never know. But David, speaking of this country ending, the world ended in the movie we call The Road Warrior, which we are talking about on this episode. Yeah, we are going to talk about it, even though... Uh, back in the inventory episode, we wrestled with the idea of talking about it. But I think, or at least for me, the more we thought about it, the more it was just like, let's just do this. You know, we're we're very good at what we do. We're very good about talking about action movies. And this is one hell of an action movie. So, yeah, I have no problem talking about this. I'm going to have a lot of fun talking about it. How about you, Mac? Yeah, man, because this is my pick. This is another Mountain Slayers pick. Mountain Slayers! David, as we discussed before, we did a run of episodes where when it came time to rank those movies on Punch Mountain itself, it seemed like we were padding the middle. So. We said, hey, let's get fat in the head. What? And let's do some movies that have a chance to break the top five. And these, this is another one of our Mount Slayers. David, I suggest this movie because it's got a pretty good pedigree with director George Miller, uh, who directed, of course, all the Mad Max movies, including Mad Max Fury Road, which we'll get to at some point. Most definitely. Calm down. Definitely has a chance to, to hit maybe you know near the top of the mountain, if not the top. And this movie, I remember when I saw it, it really hit me as, even though it was a movie from 1981, it did not feel like a movie from 1981. It felt very modern. I mean, sure, there's a lot of like elements in this movie that feel very dated, but the energy of the movie, like the stunts, the shots, the cinematography, the editing, and it culminates in an energy that feels a lot fresher than a movie from 1981, or at least one that I would expect. I think a lot of that is credit to how prophetic this movie is. Uh, you know, we'll talk about it when we get into the introduction of this movie and what happened to the world to get us here. And a lot of the things they say in 1981, or I guess 1982 is, is when it got released in the U.S., a lot of the things they say in this movie really hit close to what has happened over the past 40-some-odd years. So, you know, in addition to, yeah, it looks great. It sounds great. Everyone's really doing an awesome job with this. This movie hit it a little too close to the bullseye. Yeah, this movie is harsh, and it's harsh in a lot of ways, not just in a depiction of a harsh and very stark future. All right, Dave, let's talk about the elephant in the room, talking about Mel Gibson, who's in this movie. David, I am not a fan of Mel Gibson ever since it was revealed that he is bad. David, did you ever watch Sports Night or The West Wing? I did. I'm familiar. Yeah. Uh, Joshua Molina 
who played Will Bailey on the West Wing. He's a real <laughs> he's a real Sorkin guy. Uh, he wrote an article in the Atlantic, and it was talking about how like why the fuck are we still hiring Mel Gibson? And in his words, Gibson is a well known Jew hater. Anti Semite is too mild. His prejudices are well documented. And David, I do not disagree with that take one bit. Although I am not a fan of Mel Gibson, I am a fan of George Miller, who you know he, it's not like George Miller has been working with Mel Gibson since the '80s. He stopped. But David, Mel Gibson is in this movie that we're going to watch, and we can't get around it. And it does suck, because there's definitely moments where I almost marked out, but then I'm staring at Mel Gibson, and I just I, my energy just cannot tip over. I mean, it's not the fault of 1980s George Miller for casting Mel Gibson, but it you know it's Mel Gibson's fault now that I cannot enjoy this movie fully because he's a piece of shit. You know, I've never really particularly liked Mel Gibson, even from when I was a kid. Like, Lethal Weapon did not do it for me. Never trust an adult who likes the Three Stooges. From there, I can name the number of Mel Gibson movies I like on two fingers. Ransom and Payback. And that's it. Everything else, and those aren't even because of Mel Gibson. It's just, you could put anybody in there. Those would have been fine movies. But he's always been forgettable in my mind. So I think when it all came out about how ugly of a person he is it was pretty easy for hollywood to cut him loose so i hear what you're saying about watching this movie and, and not wanting to root for mel gibson but watching this movie also reinforced the notion of how forgettable he is like some of the close-ups some of the of the shots that of him by himself just don't land with me and it was almost a joy to watch him not be compelling in this so yeah it was just easier to watch mel gibson be forgettable in this role so i had no problem with watching The Road Warrior as far as a Mel Gibson movie. Well, David, I wish you were correct. I wish Hollywood had forgotten about Mel Gibson, but I have to say that's not exactly true. He was nominated for Best Director for Hacksaw Ridge, I believe in 2016, 2017. He was in the movie Daddy's Home 2. Uh, there's talks of him directing Lethal Weapon 5. He's going to be in the fucking John Wick spinoff about their assassin hotel. Is that right? That was the point of the Josh Molina article. Hey, if cancel culture is real, and it's not, it's clearly not because Mel Gibson is still working. If one person deserves to be canceled, it is this dude. Please stop hiring him. So David, that brings us to us, our favorite topic. I think we can talk about this movie and not have it come across as us promoting Mel Gibson, because that is what I do not want to do. The last thing I want to do is gas up a fucking piece of shit like Mel Gibson. But David, look, I got a terrible liberal conscious, right? And so I'll tell you right now, just to drive the point home, David, I looked up the body count of this movie, on-screen deaths at 51. So I will donate, not $51, this podcast, at least this month, we're going to start off our monthly donation at $102 to the Anti-Defamation League. Yeah, so hopefully that that spending will uh, uh, ease any guilt. And, and David, our listeners can make us add that donation by leaving a uh, review on Apple Podcasts. More information about all that at the end of the episode. But speaking of podcast reviews, David, we got a new one. Yes, we did. Thank you so much to Distro Destro, who left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This one's titled Desperado and Ciudad Acuña. Really love the Desperado episode, guys. My fiancé grew up in Del Rio across the U.S. border from Ciudad Acuña, where this movie was filmed. The depiction of U.S. college students walking randomly into a border town is 100% accurate. You mentioned the bar they filmed at is there to this day, Club Corona. Listeners may be interested to learn the walls are covered with behind-the-scenes photographs of cast and crew. It's fun to have a michelada at the bar Cheech and QT got shot at. Oh, well, there you go. It was confirmed because we talked about, we were wondering if that was a set or an actual bar and we weren't 100% sure. So thank you. That's uh, Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome to hear from you. And we'll add another dollar to this month's donation. Thank you, Distro Destro. Now, David, real quick though, this movie 
Oh, it is brutal. Okay. Right now, I'd like to give a wuss warning for this movie. It does feature some cruelty to animals. And then even beyond a wuss warning, a legit trigger warning, David, because this movie has some no thank you sexual assault in it as well. And then also some moments where just cold despair fills up your gut. So yes, my delicate children, this movie is not for some of you. David, before we go any farther down this road of war, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Road Warrior on Google, that's two words, Road Space Warrior, the results include these frequently asked questions, so we shall do some quickly provided answers. David, is Road Warrior a sequel to Mad Max? Yes, it is, and it is also a baked-in pilot for a spinoff of Silver Spoons. Mac, what does Road Warrior mean in a job description? David, it means you're officially certified in road murder and also Microsoft Office Suite. David, what is a Road Warrior in business? It's someone who knows how to wreck shop on a minibar. Mac, which Mad Max was filmed in Silverton? (laughs) I don't know where the fuck Silverton. God bless that Silverton Chamber of Commerce. That campaign really worked out for them. So many people were asking that question. Oh... Well, maybe if we ask it in Australian, I think we're missing the cultural disconnect here. Then. Which me and Max was filmed in Silverton. Oh, uh, not this one. You're thinking of Blue. There you go. All right. Hey, before there we travel go. to the post-apocalyptic wastelands where people fight to the death of a guzzoline, let's check in with two people who have actually heard of bicycles. Seriously. Learn how to roller skate, you pigs. It's a friendship check-in. David Hada, my good friend, how are you? What have you been up to? Ay, 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 no good, Mac. My my rig is falling apart. My computer is like giving me all kinds of trouble. I wrote something I was going to talk about in the friendship check, and I don't want to fucking talk about that anymore. We'll talk about jury duty some other time, Mac. I'm just happy to be here with you talking about this movie and not worrying about just like the million little things that could go wrong in any given day. What's going <laughs> on, my friend, Mac? <laughs> Well, David, let me ask you this. Has this ever happened to you? Do you ever have like consumerism dominoes? Like you buy one thing and next thing you know, you own three of them? I Yes. Okay. I'm with you. Go ahead. I'll stop beating around this boosh, David. For some reason, I saw something about like a Nerf gun and it was on sale and I was like, oh, Nerf gun. Yeah, yeah, Nerf. That, why would I need a Nerf gun? I'm an adult. I don't need, I'm not at a tech startup office. I don't need a, a Nerf gun. Anyway, I bought a Guardians of the Galaxy Star-Lord Nerf gun. Let's go. And then I got it, and I was like, oh, this is for children. It, my hand doesn't even fit in it. Like, I'm stupid. This is, I'm going to return this. I, sh- I, don't, I definitely don't need to buy a very expensive uh, Mandalorian pulse rifle Nerf thing, but I did, David. I fucking did. <laughs> Does that one fit your hands? Are, are you able to hold the Mandalorian one? Yes, this one is made for adults, uh, which I don't know how I feel about that either. You really puffed your chest out on that one. Yeah, it's made for me, dude. <laughs> David, you ready to hit the road? Mac, get a big old tank of gasoline. We're going in. All right, David, just a level set. In case someone is unfamiliar with this movie or has not seen it in a while, can you level set? Can you give like a back of the box description? Like a back of the VHS or DVD box description? Heck, you better kid. I'm going to warn you right now. Settle in. This one's get ready for this thesis paper that someone wrote. In 1978, a young film director released his first commercial feature, Mad Max. Uh, David, I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt you right there. This one is, uh, we're doing Road Warrior. I, I know. That's right. Yeah. <sighs> and the movie-going world was astounded by an all-out cinema blitz that became an instant cult classic. Now, director George Miller has gone a dramatic step farther in conception and technique. The result is The Road Warrior, an epic of action and carnage that comes at you full speed sweeping you into a dreamlike landscape where the post-nuclear future meets the mythological past. It's also one of the most mind-blowing stunt films ever to hit the big screen. In his most popular movie role, Mel Gibson plays Max, who drives the roads of Outback Australia in a never-ending search for gasoline. 
Lining up against him are the bizarre warriors of Lord Humongous, decked out in heavy metal costumes heralding a new barbarian <laughs> age. Heavy metal costumes. The battle is joined over a fuel depot encampment, and the results are savage and spectacular. Miller, who co-directed the equally spellbinding successor Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, credits as source material everything from Arthurian legends to comic books and samurai movies, wherein the hero, Miller says, quote, is always alone, fairly amoral seeker. There's no real hope for him, but because of some particular talent he's got, like Max's skills on the highway, he's able to give a new order. With the Road Warrior, the new order is born, and it's a blast. 1982, 96 minutes, directed by George Miller, rated all. Mac, wake up, where grandma's. Oh my god! Hey, David, you ever been to the uh, the Iron Bear, uh, that uh, rainbow flagged bar? You know, full of heavy metal fans. Oh my god, those headbangers, absolutely. Oh, David, I f- I fucking hate this back of the box, especially the Miller says is always. You know what Miller said? He made a movie. He had his say. <laughs> yeah, uh, too much, too much, and somehow not enough. Okay, now David, I should say. We've been calling this movie The Road Warrior. That was its U.S. title. In Australia, it was called Mad Max 2. But because Mad Max, despite what the back of the box said, was not that big of a hit at the time in the U.S. at all. Instead of saying like, hey, here's a sequel to a movie you've never heard of. Let's, like, let's just go ahead and pretend it's a standalone movie called The Road Warrior. Yeah, call it an action classic. Call it a cult classic. But like a hit? Come on. Okay, David, how does this movie start? Mac, this movie begins with a previously on Mad Max provided by an unknown narrator. We then join the Road Warrior in progress for our first action set piece we'll call On the Road with the Road Warrior. Mad Max Rockatansky, played by Mel Gibson, is being pursued by a gang of motor marauders led by Wes, played by Vernon Wells, not the former Toronto Blue Jay. <laughs> Thank you, David. Sorry, it was on my mind it was going to be on somebody else's. Anyway, Max is being pursued by Wes, roaring down the well-maintained roads of the post-apocalyptic Australian outback. Max manages to outdrive the Marauders for the time being and continues scouring the countryside for gasoline. Hot start, Mac. Golly. Yeah. This movie's got a hot fucking start. So let's talk about the opening credits here. We get the Mad Max 2, which I wonder if in the U.S. release, do they even put the Road Warrior title card in there? Because <laughs> if not, when Mad Max 2 hit the screen, people are going to be like, wait, what the fuck? Did I walk in the wrong theater? Looking at their tickets, that'd be amazing. And it has, it gives some people like some titles, right? But there is going to be one name that stands out to me. That's going to be the Feral Kid, Mac. That's going to be played by Emil Minty. I was not expecting the Feral Kid. So I'm very excited for this movie already. So David, again, you've said you've never seen this movie before? Oh gosh, yeah. No, I, I thought I had. It sort of, I conflated it with Mad Max, which I saw drunkenly one weekend several years ago because I had never seen it. So this is all brand new to me, Mac. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought, if, I thought for sure you'd seen this. Before I watched this movie for the first time, I also thought it was the first movie in the Mad Max series. So whoever asked that Google question, you're not alone, idiot. But yeah, Feral Kid. That's If you're seeing this in theaters and it's like, Immo Minty is Feral Kid, That's a uh, you turn to your friend and you go, this movie's got a feral kid in it. So already not a bad start. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit of this opening uh, narration audio. I remember the road warrior, the man we called Max. To understand who he was, you have to go back to another time when the world was powered by the black fuel and the desert sprouted great cities of pipe and steel. Gone now, swept away. For reasons long forgotten, two mighty warrior tribes went to war and touched off a blaze which engulfed them all. Without fuel, they were nothing. They'd built a house of straw 
the thundering machine sputtered and stopped. So like I said, Mac, this thing goes on to be pretty prophetic. Uh, I just wanted to give credit to like the way this movie sets the stage. This whole voiceover intro lasts for like four minutes and seven seconds when it's all said and done. But by the time you're done with it, you're ready to start the Road Warrior. Yeah. And you also get a recap of Mad Max 1, which I honestly barely remember. Like it shows that uh, Mad Max's family gets run down, his wife and his kid, which I didn't even remember he had a wife and kid. So I was like, oh, thank you, and uh, I hate you, opening movie recap. But Mac, how did you see The Road Warrior this time? This time I watched on Amazon Prime. Okay, so I think you had the same issue I had, where it starts off and it's doing the recap, but it's in a one-to-one aspect ratio instead of covering my entire TV. And I was like, you know, with all the confusion of Road Warrior, Mad Max 2, Mad Max, I was like, oh, shoot, did I rent the wrong version? Is this some kind of, like made-for-TV edit that only exists in 1.1, but thankfully, it grew to the 4.3 or the 16.9, whatever the heck it ended up being. Yeah, when that logo hit, I, for a second, was like, ah, is this, <laughs> is this movie like a TV ratio? I don't remember that, but then, yes, it, it got bigger. But David, as soon as we get the action, we get the opening, blam, like, and we just, we see, like, right away, we're right into it, some, like, point-of-view shots of just cars, these, like, you know, post-apocalyptic war rigs, uh, well, not necessarily war rigs, but just like souped up cars. War rigs come later. And man, I was pumped from the get-go. And normally, David, I would have marked out hard. But then, and I don't, I'm not going to touch on it the whole review. But then again, we cut to Mel Gibson's face and I fucking frowned at it. There you go, movie. <laughs> it's not your fault, but it's also the that dude's fault. Uh, but yeah, we see Mad Max here. He's trying to outrun these marauders, including this dude with a red mohawk who looks like a pretty fucking fierce guy. We find out his name is Wes. I think we only find out by pausing it and looking at IMDb because no one has ever given a goddamn name in this movie except for Lord Humongous. No, and you feel stupid for looking them up because you're like, okay, what's this guy with the gyrocopter? What's his name? It's got to be something funny and cool. Gyrocaptain. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And it's like, it's just a waste of time. I'm going to repeat it over and over again. Anything on the road is awesome in this movie. The the stunt work, the camera work is really, really cool. You feel it right away. You cut into the into the car. You see Mel Gibson. You want him off the screen as quickly as possible. But then you cut to a cute dog, Mac. You cut to this Australian cattle dog. And, and, and unfortunately, Mac, we're going to have to give a wuss warning for this one. Correct me on this one if I'm wrong. Is this going to be our first bad news wuss warning? Because generally... We warn people and, and, and everything's okay. This is going to be our first bad news one, isn't it? No, we've given some wuss warnings for some like disgusting shots. Like, hey, if you don't want to see a head smashed open, uh, turn away. But this is our first wuss warning for, yeah, heart-wrenching. Because, look, the dog does get murdered later in the movie. You do not see it. It happens off screen. But my heart fucking saw it, David. And David, I did not remember this dog died. I was like so high on this dog. I was like, oh, do we need to start a dog punch mountain? Because there's that dog in prey and then the, this dog is. But then, no, I don't. I don't know, man. But yeah, this thing fucking starts hot to the point where with this editing and the shots and the, the energy, even though I just looked it up, I was like, wait, when was this movie made? Late 80s? I was like, again, 81. I think you can tell right away this movie, man, it's got that, I mean, I'm going to pun intended, high octane energy. I don't feel like anything was like it at the time. I could definitely be wrong. Let me know if I am, but it stands out. And I think it's one of the things that made me remember it. But David, this action scene kind of concludes at this one spot of a previous car accident where there's like an overturned uh, big red. Well, not overturned. It's just kind of like off the side of the road. And you, you can tell like a fight has gone down here because there's like dead bodies. And one of the things lying in the middle of the road, David, is a dead kangaroo. A little on the nose that it takes place in Australia. I mean, like, what do you want? The corpse of Paul Hogan there? I, it just come on. But also, David, in the beginning of this movie, was like, oh, uh, the world fell apart. Society's collapsed. Cannibalism is here. Okay, if we're cannibals, uh, this is a perfectly good dead kangaroo. Let's, let's eat this dead kangaroo, guys. Why did we leave this just on the side of the road? 
Oh, future people, I'm wagging my finger at you. Wait, has cannibalism always been a part of this, or are we just sort of inserting that into the apocalypse narrative? Cannibalism at least was at the mentioned at the beginning uh, during the the voiceover recap introduction of the fall of society. Surprisingly, there's no cannibalism in this movie. I mean, at some point, the fact there's no cannibalism almost seems irresponsible. Keep talking, Mike. I'm just going to do a punch-up real quick, and then I'll get right back to you. Oh, what's your punch-up? More cannibalism. I want to see chomping. I want to see people getting eaten. I want to see limbs. You're sick. However, I do advocate for more cannibalism. Like, look, if if your friend gets shot and you didn't shoot him, someone else did, and now you're just looking at his dead body, eat that son bitch. That's just good protein. This gang is getting their protein from somewhere. I think they are cannibals. They just didn't. They're just not showy about it. But David Wes, this apocalyptic punk marauder dude, decked out in fetish gear. He's got his lover, David, who's credited as Golden Youth. And David, looking at this Golden Youth, were we ever that young, David? (laughs) Were we ever that golden? I know I certainly wasn't. Oh, my goodness. You can look at their relationship a couple ways. You can interpret it a couple ways. I'm going to just, I don't know, err on the side of optimism and just say that they were in a consensual relationship, that this is what they wanted. Oh, the fact that you even brought that up, I had not. I I thought they were very much in love. The the fact that an alternative could exist, no, I I won't have it. Okay, good. And Wes, as you mentioned, played by Vernon Wells. And I was like, Vernon Wells, why do I know this name? He's the fucking bad dude from Commando. Oh, get out of town, Charlie Brown. That's hilarious. Yeah, in Commando, David, he's like a clown. Schwarzenegger, right? Ripped as hell in Commando is going off against this dude who's just like chewing scenery, overacting, and he he's not in shape. Which, look, I'm not in shape either, but I'm also not square off against Schwarzenegger. And he's wearing this weird, like, chainmail vest the entire time. And I'm kind of like, where do they find this dude? But then in this movie, Wes looks fucking awesome and terrifying. If I was the producers of Commando, I also would have cast him in my movie. And then when this weird dude showed up, I would have been like, hey, man, uh, what gives? Like, uh, put those uh, shoulder pads back on. I love it when movies cast honest-to-God maniacs, and Vernon Wells looks like an honest-to-God maniac. He, he's got those eyes that just are so captivating. Like, when he is upset, you see it. No, I, I can't say enough good things about it. He's fantastic in this movie. Yeah. I hate Wes, but I also love Wes. But David, these roads for the post-apocalypse, uh, they're, they don't, they're not too bad. Yeah, you know, uh, we were, you're talking about how this movie feels timeless, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it takes place in the outback. There's no structures to date it or anything like that. There's no building that looks old or no signage that looks irrelevant. But the one thing that almost took me out of this movie is how well-preserved these roads are. And my first thought was, wow, these roads in the post-apocalypse sure are well-maintained. But then I thought, wow, these roads in 1980s Australia sure are well-maintained. It's so much better maintained than our roads today. Mac, what are we doing wrong with society? If I drive to Target and I don't have my wits about me, my car falls into a pit. (laughs) The the roads could use a little work. But yes, Max does manage to outdrive the Marauders and he kills a couple of them, I think. And then Wes like drives away. And Max's reward is like a little bit of like dirty gasoline. Just kind of looks like mud. So David, they they need that fuel and Max has got to keep looking for it. Well, his pursuit of gasoline is going to lead him to, is that an abandoned gyrocopter? Well, that's weird. But wait, it's a trap set by the cunning and appropriately named gyro captain, played by professional creep Bruce Spence. Is that true? Oh my goodness. He's not a creep in real life, David, but he was the creepy guy in The Matrix. He also was the voice of Sauron. Look that guy up in Lord of the Rings. He's a creep. Okay, so he's not like Doug Hutchinson. He's not like that. No, no, no. He's just a dude who kind of looks like how he looks. And because of that, he gets cast in a lot of creepy roles. But Gyro Captain, 
I would you call this character? I know we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. Would you call him creepy? No, I'd call him a I'd call him a goof. Yeah, he is goofy. He just looks kind of creepy. Sorry, Bruce Spence. But when Max gets the jump on the gyro captain, the gyro pleads for his life, offering to show Max the way to an actual functioning oil refinery, pumping out black gold by the tanker. The trio, Max, the captain, and the dog, stake out the refinery, awaiting their next move. So when we first see this copter car, I was like, oh, copter car. That's right. I remember it from this movie. Before I even finished that sentence, my brain goes, oh, no, wait, is some annoying guy in this movie? And then the gyro (laughs) captain guy shows up. And I think I remembered him worse than he is because he's fine in this movie. He's fine. So, Mac, I'm going to talk about Mel Gibson a little bit, but don't worry. I'm going to talk about how shitty of an actor he is. There's a moment here where he pulls up to the gyrocopter and he sees it and he's thinking, oh, I'm going to get, there's probably gasoline in there. Or there's probably gasoline nearby. I can't wait to get it. And Max Rokotansky, honest to God, licks his lips like he's a cartoon dog looking at his friend who just turned into a giant steak. I don't miss shitty actor Mel Gibson at all. Mmm, that tasty, tasty gas. I don't blame him. But Max, you know, like I said, this, uh, this thing is a trap. You know, it, the gyrocopter is set out there to lure max and then the gyro captain's gonna catch whoever and take their gasoline and whatever they have but here's a tip for for people trying to survive the apocalypse Uh, let's call this one a gyro trap tip if there's footprints leading away from the gyrocopter as there was in this shot follow the footprints first find the source of the footprints then you can have all the gasoline and gyrocopters you want you know the thing about the gyro captain you called him cunning and i was like well he's kind of goofy but david you're right he's not stupid because he did set this trap and the trap partially involved a snake like he put a, a snake on his gyrocopter kind of like you would a uh, a snaking like bike lock but he's like you know what if it's an actual fucking snake which mad max just like quickly grabs with his hand and then the gyro captain i'll just call him gyro gyro like pops out of his like uh spider hole in the desert there and he's like ah faster than the snake huh impressive i guess he just was like oh shit the snake gets everybody now i gotta fucking i I gotta uh, fight somebody hey stupid take me over to your car and and give me your gas max is like oh man you can't take my gas because my tanks are rigged to blow if you fuck them they're gonna blow up and gyro's like okay turn it off (laughs) and then max is like all right fine fuck and so he goes over to the tanks and you see him reaching down to like turn off this thing. And it is true. Like his tanks are rigged to blow if you fuck with it. And David, these tanks are kind of like Chekhov's armed gas tanks because it comes into play later in the movie. But you see Max has hidden a weapon down there and he's reaching for it. And Gyro says this. Hi. A fella. A quick fella. Might have a weapon under there. I'd have to pin his head to the panel. And he's right, David. And so... Max takes his hands off the weapon and indeed turns off the tank. However, what Gyro did not expect was the post-apocalyptic world's best dog, dog, coming out and getting the best of Gyro, scaring him, and then Max gets the gun. MVP dog. There, there are no bad scenes with dog in this movie, except for the, the ultimate one. But like, there's no worrying about dog. Like, oh no, dog's going to get us in a heap of trouble. No, this dog is aces all the way. Because when they're driving away now... But the the dog has is holding a gun on Gyro. And I wrote down on my notes, dog has gun on him. Uh-oh, do we have a contender for cinema's best dog? <laughs> I was so high on this dog to begin with that uh, I reached a real low point later. And Gyro was like, please don't kill me. Uh, tell you what, I know where there's an actual uh, oil refinery. They're, they're chunka-lunka-lunka. They're making gas. They're, they're pumping it out. And Max is like, all right, take me there. And sure enough, they, they show up and they get to this oil refinery and they get there in time to see it being attacked 
by these marauders. And basically it's like, oh, let's just sit back and watch this uh, stunt spectacular that's happening in front of us. And we, when we see this marauding gang, David, we see Wes, the marauder from earlier in the movie. He's part of this gang. That's right. But he's going to be the number two in this gang because we're going to meet the leader of this gang. This is going to be our first look at Lord Humongous, played by Kale Nilsson, who you might know from his Nordic sitcom, Keenan and Kiel. Wow, David. It's weird because we don't do this podcast for any sort of network, but we've just been fired. It's fucked up. <laughs> it is fucked up. Yeah. And to paint a picture. So in the middle of the wastelands, there's like this compound that's like circled by walls and vehicles. And in the middle of it, there's like, you know, some oil pumps, oil rigs, this kind of thing. And the people in the compound, because they have gas and oil, they have like flamethrowers and they're fighting off these marauders who are just like driving around in circles, trying to breach the walls of this compound so they can get in, get some gas and probably just fuck shit up because they're terrible marauding scum. And Max just like hangs back and he's just like checking it out, kind of planning a move because Gyro's like, I watched for three days and I couldn't figure out how to get in. <laughs> Again, I'm going to keep doing it. I just can't help it with the bad Australian accents. I apologize. I apologize. And we see uh, Mad Max just eating some delicious dog food, which, you know how cartoon food looks great, David? Like any sort of meat in a cartoon looks amazing. I always do. Yeah. Yeah. This dog food, for some reason, I saw that and I go, mm, I bet that's good. Oh, Dinky D with uh, meat and vegetables? Yeah, you bet. I was looking forward to that. Look, if you don't mean to make a dumb Australian uh, accent, you got to stop calling your dog food Dinky D. You just got to stop. But yeah, so Max and the captain and the dog, they're all hanging out safely away from the compound, keeping an eye on it. But they're at this high ground where they have a vantage point over everything. They have a vantage point over the compound, the stunt spectacular going on, which I thought at first was happening inside the compound. I thought they were just celebrating life with sick jumps and stuff like that. But, like, if this refinery is so important, how come no one thought to fortify this or protect it? Like, this is just open for anyone to stake out. I mean, they built walls around it. They have a flamethrower. I guess they did not expect uh, Humongous. But then again, David, who does? You should always expect Humongous, Mac. As I've learned, this was love at first sight with me and Humongous. I mean, the look of him, just the the hockey mask, the... The leather neck brace, which I want to start incorporating into my life for safety and security reasons. This is awesome. Yeah, Lord Humongous is this giant, ripped dude with that Jason-style hockey mask. And the back of his head, though, clearly shows he's not a well man. Uh, that he may have may have just grown up next to like a, some leaking radiation or something. But anyway, David, there's some action in the compound. The gate to the compound opens, and two cars make a break for it in different directions. Yes, and after some not great things happen to the passengers of the, of those cars, Max carries one of the survivors back to the compound in exchange for some of that sweet gasoline. When the survivor dies, Max's deal for gasoline dies with him. We also meet our main baddie, the charismatic Lord Humongous, who offers to spare the lives of the compound settlers if they will just walk away and abandon their refinery for the taking. So David, two cars leave. One makes a break for it, kind of driving more or less straight past the marauding gang and another car tries to sneak out the back it, it does not it is not successful in its sneaking though as the marauding gang spots it and heads out why do you think they sent these cars out in the first place i was under the impression they were testing what it would be like to leave this compound because as we'll find out later they're setting a plan to escape with all the gasoline that they're pumping out so i think this was, i thought this was just a trial balloon you know let's see do marauders go after them how far can they make it etc what, what was your read on this I mean, possibly, because later on in the movie, there's a hint that they think because they have a lot of gas and fast cars that they're able to outrun these vehicles, but they're wrong because they could track down pretty easily. I thought they might be going for help because at this point in the movie, I thought like, oh, they must be making gas 
they're digging for because there's oil here in the ground here in the wasteland and they're part of some some group from uh i don't know a different community sent them out here or something like that so i think my takeaway was that they were trying to go get some help to to ward off these marauders but yeah david uh the first car gets run down and you see that in the car is a man and a woman david if they thought there was a chance that this car would get overtaken this isn't even the decoy car it's the main car i saw that and i was like oh don't put a woman in there and yeah, they sexually assault her, David. And I got to say, this scene, uh, tough to watch. Oh, most definitely. I, I, I hated watching it. It's, it, um, you know, we make them good now, is what I'll always say about movies. So, like, I want to give the movie the benefit of the doubt. I know what it's doing. It's trying to be exploitative. It wants to sell tickets. But, like, there are other apocalyptic movies that can sell a wasteland hellscape without doing this. So it, it, it did hurt as far as the mountain goes. I did not mind it as part of the story, like that this happened to the person because they're trying to portray this wasteland as is really just this bleak, terrible place. I get it. But I, I think there was like five or six shots that, you know, show this assault. And I think you could have done with the first one and the last one. And then David, for some reason, they kill her after they're finished. They shoot her with a crossbow bolt. I don't know why you want to do that. That also felt needlessly brutal, especially because the other person they pulled out of the car, the other member of the compound, they didn't kill him. They shot him, but he's like still alive. I was watching the movie when they went to one shot too many. I wrote, Jesus, we get it. And then it happened again. I go, Jesus, we get it. And then when they shot her with a bolt, I go, Jesus, we get it. So yeah, it was a not a Jesus fucking Christ, but a Jesus we get it times three. But when Max sees this happening, he does make his way out there. You know, I thought like, oh, he's going to go stop this assault or save this lady. He doesn't either. He shows up after the lady is killed and he makes a deal with the other survivors. Like, hey, if I take you back inside, will you give me some gas? And the guy's like, yeah, 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 gas. All that you can carry in your car. But David, there's the, the rapist on the ground and Max shows up and the rapist like looks up at Max and you see this like this low angle shot of Max with this amazing cloud background. And David... It is one of the many very beautiful shots in this film. The crazy thing about this movie is if you look at the other movies on the mountain, this will not end up at the top. I can almost guarantee it. However, out of all the movies on the mountain, this one, in terms of it being art, I would almost have, I think I'd have the best argument. Credit to Dean Samler. Dean Samler is going to be the director of photography on this movie. He shot a great movie. And, you know, credit to George Miller. He knows the Australian Outback. He knows how to shoot it. He knows how to make it look beautiful, but also terrifying and foreboding. It, this is a very pretty movie to look at. There's something about this movie, which is definitely made for entertainment. It almost doesn't feel like that, though. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't feel like it's being made to entertain us. It just feels like it just got made. It feels like we're almost intruding on these people making this movie, where it's like, oh, I didn't know you guys were going to film this this weekend. Yeah, I guess we could still do it. But Max drags a survivor back to the compound and the compound people are not happy to see Max. They're like, kill him, kill him or whatever. And we got our first look at these compound people. They're all dressed in white. They're also wearing American football shoulder pads. What happened in the Australian apocalypse? Did a tanker full of these shoulder pads on its way from China just like crash and just, you know, or cargo airplanes just drop all their boxes of shoulder pads all across Australia? I have to assume they washed up over the years, but I, I love this makeshift quality. There, It's the little apocalyptic touches of this movie. Because if you look at all these people in the compound, and this is gonna, and they're going to be led by uh, a character named Papagallo, uh, played by Michael Preston. But they're all going to be wearing white, kind of like uniforms. They did their best to cobble together whatever white clothing they could to make something that represents a uniform. And then you look at these characters, 
They all have shabby haircuts, like they did the haircuts themselves. Little subtle stuff like that is it works for me. There's also a very 1980s quality to the way they look, and I gotta say, 1980s apocalypse. I'm a fan of it. But yeah, we we meet some characters here. They're just their names are what they are. Like the mechanic who doesn't have the use of his legs, but kind of travels around with different uh, rigs. There's also a woman named Warrior Woman, played by Virginia Hay. But David, there's also one character not wearing white, and that character is the feral kid. It's a feral kid, David. He's like a wolf kid. Give the casting director the Academy Award for this one. That kid, bless his heart, I hope he grew up into that face, but uh, this is a feral-looking child. But man, you talk about all like the touches and the way that these different characters look and interact. Feral Kid has a razor-sharp boomerang that he is able to throw and catch because he's got like a chainmail glove. But David, I had to actually stop the movie here because you know my wife is feral. Mm -hmm. And as soon as Feral Kid showed up on screen, she just would not stop barking at it. Uh, she really did not like this feral kid. I don't know why. Because, I mean, my kid's half feral. My child. Yeah, she just didn't care for this uh, this cinematic feral kid. Kind of like how sometimes a dog will watch a nature documentary and just bark at a hippopotamus. But you still have the blanket to put over her, right? I gave her some CBD dog treats. Lord Humongous shows back up with the Marauders. And the other car, not the decoy one, but the other car, the Marauders tracked it down because the, the drivers and passenger of that car are now mounted on the top of the Marauders' vehicles. Not the top, excuse me, the front. And they're still alive and they're like screaming stuff. They're just like, they're really simping pretty hard for Humongous at this point. They're like, he's reasonable. Don't shoot us, please. He's just negotiate with them. It's like, oh, you guys sold out so hard just because what he threatened to eat you or something. You suck. <laughs> this poor schmuck. What an embarrassing way to go out because you can't possibly think, hey, things can only go up from here. But like, he's tied to the front. They're driving along and he's like, hold your fire. He wants to make a deal. And it's like, Mac, if you ever see me tied to the front of someone else's car as either a prisoner or a trophy, please kill me. Just take your best shot, buddy. Yeah, I'll I'll try and launch as many arrows as it takes just to try and get one in you, David. But David, all these creeps, these marauders show up. They kill their engine and they're sitting there. And then there's a wide shot of all of the marauders and their souped up cars, their war rigs, everything they got. This movie is nuts, David. Just looking at that, looking, seeing us in theaters in like 1981, what are you thinking? It's just, it's, it is, it is crazy. Like the attention to detail with these cars. Yeah, these things are nuts. And I, I get the appeal of this movie. Even when at times this movie definitely feels like a warm up for Mad Max Fury Road. Like this is something like, it's almost like a practice, you know, like, oh, he did pretty good, but he fucking nailed in the next movie. That doesn't mean this movie does not have some visual accomplishments in it. When this movie is good, it's great. When this movie hits, it really hits. The characters are really winning and really engaging in this movie. One of my favorites is going to be the Toady, played by Max Phipps. And, you know, everyone's named after what they do, but God bless the Toady. He is a great Toady. And in fact, if we can play a little bit of, of his introduction of, uh, of Lord Humongous, this is pretty great right here. Greetings from the Humongous. The Lord Humongous. The warrior of the wasteland! The Ayatollah of Rock and Roller! Ayatollah of Rock and Roller. David, I heard that before. It is actually I did not know it was from this movie. Me neither. I, I thought that was like a parody thing. I'd never thought it came from a legitimate source, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then we meet Lord Humongous. He gets on the mic, he's talking. This is what Humongous sounds like, in case you wanted to know that. I am gravely disappointed. Again, you have made me unleash my dogs of war. 
Look at what remains of your gallant scouts. Why? Because you're selfish. You hold your gasity. There he is. And as Humongous is uh, wrapping up his conversation, out comes Feral Kid and he throws that razor sharp boomerang. Whoop, 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 whoop. But David, this dumb boomerang, it, it boomerangs on him. Yeah, he's going to throw it, just trying to hit whatever, just trying to scare this, this band of marauders. And he clocks Golden Youth in the head and he makes Wes all mad about it. And then Wes takes the boomerang out, tries to throw it at the Feral Kid, but then it comes boomeranging back on him. And Tony reaches up, tries to grab it, cuts his goddamn fingers off. Mac, this is going to be my first mark out moment in the movie. I audibly said no when Golden Youth died. I don't know why <laughs> I got so attached to that character so fast. But I was, I was sad to see, I don't know, Golden Youth's pronouns. I was sad to see them go. But David, you're right. In, in the short span of time, this gang comes up and the Toadie's like, oh, he's the Ayatollah of Rock and Rolla. And then Lord Humongous starts speaking. And then very quickly, Toadie gets his fingers chopped off. They kill Golden Youth. And then Wes is so mad that Lord Humongous grabs him and like chokes him out. I was like, my God, this is a total clown show. Like these guys show up and you can't just like not kill each other for five seconds. And the fact that he's like, you're embarrassing me. And then has to like choke out Wes. Oh God. Oh, by the way, when they're choking out Wes, you get a shot of the back of Lord Humongous's head. And he's, by the way, Humongous is definitely, the actor is definitely wearing some sort of like helmet to carry out this like weird, giant, sort of veiny, patchy hair, bald look. But David, the, the veins on the back of his head are like throbbing as he's choking out Wes. It's gross. It's disgusting. It's like Ren and Stimpy levels of gross. I'm like, why do we need this? But it's, this is such a midnight movie. This is such a cult movie. And that's just one of those touches that's like, yeah, that, of course, this guy would have a pulsing vein in the back of his skull. So after the Marauders come up and basically do the equivalent of like, you don't want to fuck with us. Oh, I just shit my pants and threw up. And then one of my friends ate the throw up and then he shit his pants. After they <laughs> do that, Lord Humongous is like, I'm going to give you a full day. I'll, we'll be back. We're, we're, we're not this stupid. And then we, I was like, man, look, at these, these guys are clowns. It's a total clown show. And then we cut into the compound, David, and those guys are also clowns. Let's talk about that. In fact, let's start with the, as the Marauders are leaving, there's going to be a character in the compound named Quiet Man. He's played by David Slingsby. And as they're leaving, he goes, we'll never walk away. And then he shoots an arrow. He's not going to hit anything. They're so far gone. But as I'm watching this movie, I'm like, me too, man. I would be so full of like impotent rage. I would have to let it out, but I don't want to let it out in a way that it's going to get me killed. So yeah, I, I hear you. While the settlers debate Humongous's offer, Max reveals that he saw a truck a few days back that can help them haul away this entire tanker of gasoline. Max offers to retrieve the truck in exchange for all the gasoline he can carry and maybe eat. No, don't just carry. The settlers agree to Max's terms and he's off to retrieve that truck. Yeah, so we're going to learn more about these settlers. They're, they are truly a bunch of losers. In fact, as we join them in progress, there's going to be a character named Big Rebecca who's like, did you hear the good news, boys? He's letting us walk away. Like, she really wants to leave. Like, this is the best idea in the world, and they don't have a better one than that. Yeah, she caves so fast. She goes, you heard what he said? It sounds reasonable. And I was like, oh, no, this is a clown show, too. You guys are clowns. And then when more of the settlers come out, you see one is dressed like the general from the general insurance. And I think he's actually credited as the captain in the thing. And I was like, oh, no, these guys are crazy. These goddamn townies. Ugh. And they're debating it. And we see Papa Gallo here. He's like the leader. And he's like, look, we're going to get out of here. We just need to tough it out. We'll find a way. And then I think it was Big Rebecca who throws this in his face. And I, I hate this. She goes, words. All you're saying is words. 
Okay, all you're saying is words, Rebecca. Shut the fuck up. Oh, you're saying his words. I'm the one who wants to leave here. And it's like, you're not you're not the hero you think you are. Like in the movie The Insider, the Michael Mann film, when Al Pacino's like, eh, testify against the cigarette companies. Uh, Russell Crowe and Russell Crowe's like, I'm risking my life. All you give me is words. It's like, ah, what do you want Al Pacino to do? Like take a gun and mow down uh, R.J. Reynolds? But David, Max earlier found like a little like uh, music box crank and Feral Kid sees this. They have a little interaction here. Yeah, you know, Max is trying to make friends with the feral kid. He doesn't want to get chomped by him. So he pulls out this little music box that plays Happy Birthday. The feral kid's reactions are so winning and so full of joy. My first thought was, this kid better not die. I really don't want to. If, if this kid dies, I'm going to lose my mess. It's a great job. Like his little like feral noise is like, <laughs> it definitely sounds like an excited dog. So after Max listens to these townies do their dumb townie talk for a while, finally he's like, hey, shut the fuck up. I saw a truck that can haul that tinker out of here. If you want to get out of there, I'm your best bet. Talk to me. And David, this is like the most dialogue that Max has in this movie. But I like it. You think about like what a beautiful thing that language can be. But David, this world is not beautiful, right? This is a very sparse world. And you know everything is scarce. And so the fact that dialogue is scarce and the fact that dialogue in this movie, you know, with the exception of Ayatollah or Rock and Rolla, there's no like beauty to the language being used here. It's all it's a very transactional for the most part, and it fits. It's not an overridden movie in terms of dialogue, for sure. It's funny you say that because probably the most verbose person in this movie is going to be Lord Humongous, and it almost feels as though he gets to speak because he's a head of state, and everything he says, you know, he's he's cutting wrestling promos throughout this movie left and right, and it's like that he's exercising his privilege to do so. But you know, you're absolutely right as far as uh, as far as Max's sparseness throughout the movie, I be- I think he had something like 19 lines of dialogue throughout the entire movie. I might be making that up. Now, I- I- I'm embarrassed to say it out loud. It's it's kind of one of the reasons why I don't mind talking about this, even though it is a Mel Gibson movie, because he's there throughout the entire movie. I can't think of very many scenes where it- where Max is not featured, but he's there as a bystander. He's not there driving the action. He's there reacting to it. You can you can enjoy this movie without having to live it through Max's experience, and that's okay with me. Yeah, David, you're right, because the central conflict here is the settlers trying to escape the, the marauders here who have them surrounded. And Max doesn't give a shit about that. He's willing to help the central conflict just so he can get some gasoline, and then he's happy to leave it before it plays out, before it reaches a resolution. Now, he doesn't because it's a fucking movie, so stay tuned. But they agree to Max's deal, like, okay, you can get that truck that can uh, haul away this oil tanker, and we'll give you all the gas that you need. And so he needs to go and gas up this tanker. And so they send him on his way with a big thing of gas over his shoulder. But David, right before they do, right when he's leaving, uh, I don't know if it's Quiet Man or somebody else, because Max has like a, um, he's got like a brace on his leg, like a metal brace. And as he's walking away, a guy reaches out and like with a little, seriously, Tin Woodsman style oil can, tick, 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 like oils his leg. I almost marked out. But then when he shows up to the top of the, the mountain there where he, the captain, the dog were originally like surveying the scene and eating dog food, the pilot is gone and Max seems like disappointed by it because Max had handcuffed the gyro pilot to like a tree. He's like, oh, I'm sorry he didn't just stay handcuffed there for a day, stupid. But he eventually tracks him down. Max does indeed reunite with the gyrocaptain. That's right. And together they're going to return to the gyrocopter and use it to recover the truck. Max decides to forego strategy and drives the truck right past Humongous and his gang. 
Max makes it to the compound, and the settlers have to defend the compound walls from a humongous onslaught. It's an action set piece we'll call Waves of Wes. So like I said, when Max sees Gyro again, Max is holding like a uh, stick uh, or like a, you know some sort of like metal rod. And the metal rod on it, he, it's hanging like four gasoline cans. And then when he sees the Gyro Captain, the Gyro Captain, by the way, is still, he did not escape his, his uh, shackles. So he still has like his feet are shackled. He's just kind of walking very slowly and he's dragging a log that he was handcuffed to. He's dragging the log behind him. And then the next shot, we see that Max is now making him making the gyro captain carry the gasoline. So Max has, for all intents and purposes, like enslaved the gyro captain? Yeah, very much so. Like, I'm watching this movie, and even when the gyro captain sees Max coming, he starts to pick up his pace. You know, he's trying to get away from Max, and I'm just thinking, man, leave gyro captain alone. I don't enjoy rooting for Max, and I think, you know, obviously he's an anti-hero. Obviously he's going to be a complicated man. But it's not a fun time rooting for this dick. Yeah, like a lot of heroes like this, you'd expect him to have some sort of like code of honor. He gives his word and he'll like stick to it. But the fact that he's got this cruelty in him, and it's not like he just reserves the cruelty for his enemies. He's being cruel to this guy that just like him trying to survive, there's no malice coming from the gyro captain. It does make him definitely a lesser hero, like less of a heroic person. But also, because Max is so cruel, it does add to the hardiness of it. But yes, I definitely wrote down in my notes, Max sucks. <laughs> but they do manage to get the truck started up. They're going to drive it straight back to the compound, straight through the camp of the Marauders. Yeah, okay. So let me ask you this, Mac. Am I dumb? Or was that seriously the plan? Was just to drive it through Humongous's camp? Pretty stupid plan. I mean, you'd think that, I don't know, nighttime would maybe uh, be a good time to drive it? Some sort of cover of darkness, some sort of uh, some sort of trickery. But he drives it right through. Everyone gives chase. This is awesome. This is going to be another great set piece. But Mac, the driving and the stunt work in this movie, since it, since it was shot in Australia, it's a little too non-union for my enjoyment. And by that, I mean, they probably started the movie with like 83 stunt workers and then ended with 78, and we'll never hear about the other five. David, you're maybe right. More about that later. Uh, but yes, <laughs> I like this action set piece. It, it is a short one. And as you see Max driving through the camp, at some moment he like his car rips off this piece of fabric that I guess is a tent, and then we see under the tent people having consensual sex. Thank you, movie. Finally, some people having some fun. Those characters, by the way, are both credited as tent lover. But you see one marauder is like working underneath the car and all the marauders are like, oh, like, oh no, he's, he's, he's after us. And so they'll rush to their cars and the guy working under the car is like, oh, maybe he works a little bit faster. Try and get it up and running. About two beats later, a car crashes into the car being worked on and the dude underneath the car gets straight crunched by that car. And David, this was my first markout moment. I love a good crunching, I guess. I didn't know that about me. But then after hard boiled, <laughs> when that guy gets like moto crunched. And then this one, yeah, I, I guess I like a good crunch. That guy at Hard Boiled got turned to dust. That was the best. <laughs> uh, the, this one's not going to be an MOM for me. This one's going to be a JFC because I was not expecting it. Like I knew I they had telegraphed the guy working under the car. So I knew it was going to happen, but I wasn't expecting it to happen, if that makes sense. I JFC'd on this one. 
Yeah, Humongous is sick of this shit too. And so Lord Humongous pulls out his, he's got a gun. He's got a working gun, unlike Max, who has one shotgun shell. And then when he tries to use it, it's like a firecracker at this point. Yeah, but on the other hand, Lord Humongous pulls out this rich mahogany case and it's lined with red velvet, opens it up and there's this gun there with, you know, every single bullet has its own little compartment. Mac, I like movies without guns in them or with with a scarcity of guns so that when you do see a gun, it is a really big deal. And this was a really big deal. And, and I'm glad this gun got a special case for it. It does. It almost seemed like a family case or the case that belonged to a family at some point. But obviously Lord Humongous takes care of this gun. <laughs> like he probably has a name for it. But David, this truck that uh, Max is driving is a Mack truck. And combined with Police Captain Mack, from Speed last week, um, I think I'm ready to start a Mac Mountain, David. Uh, and I got to say that uh, right now on top of Mac Mountain is this Mac truck followed by Captain Mac from Speed, who was a pretty ineffectual captain. <laughs> it's a pretty good mountain so far. We'll see how it thickens up. But Max makes it back to the compound and some of the marauders do too. And there's like a little bit of like fight along the walls of the compound. And at some point like Wes is in there and you're like, oh shit, is Wes going to get in? And Quiet Man sees Wes. Wes sees Quiet Man. What Wes does is he runs at Quiet Man and then does this sick fucking flip. He does this badass jump in the air. And I wrote it in my notes, I hate Wes, but Wes also rules. And then he headbutts the Quiet Man. And they do this weird thing like when he makes contact, it goes all white for like a ha- uh, couple frames. I thought that was brilliant because it's it's a great cheat. You don't actually have to make contact with the other actor. But if you just white out those frames, you can certainly make it like they did. But with the help of a flamethrower and I guess, you know, these semi-useless settlers, they were able to repel the gang. And Max, you know, he's successful. He, re- he brought the truck back and now the settlers can make a break for it. But David, let's talk about the Marauders real quick. As I wrote down in my notes here, finally, why fetish gear? It's not, they're not just wearing like leather motorcycle stuff. There's definitely like a little bit of, you know, BDSM kind of aesthetic here. Like you look at Wes, he's not just wearing like leather pants. He's wearing like assless chaps and a thong. A lot of Marauders are maybe queer coded. And in the case of Wes and his boyfriend, they're definitely queer characters. And so I was like, all right, I need to look more in this. And so I, I did a little Googling, buddy. And here's the thing. I'm not a scholar of like queer film theory or any LGBTQ representation of the movie. So I mean, definitely, listener, if you have some comments about this, let's talk about it. But I found uh, this one LGBTQ website, and it was listing like our favorite queer coded characters, and it mentioned the Road Warrior, and it says, okay, so the Mel Gibson of it all makes her visiting the Road Warrior kind of tough. Well put. But it's worth taking a gander at it just to check out its super queer and kinky biker gang led by the mega leather daddy Lord (laughs) Humongous. It's nice that some people are able to look at this movie kind of with like a sense of humor. As kind of funny and having fun as it looking back on queer coded villains, I was like, it still seems not great, right? Because David, if there's characters that are queer coded before you're able to have openly gay characters, then that's one thing, right? Because it's you're basically trying to fit in some representation, not as overt because you know these studios may not like it overt, kind of like how Emmett and Roadhouse. However, so many villains are being queer coded, and it, it, I sort of was like, you know, this seems bad, right? And I found an article, I think it was Wikipedia, and it said. However, queer coding may have a negative impact on perceptions of queerness in media. Villains are often queer coded, leading to the pejorative perception of queer traits. That by queer coding villainous characters, they're equating queerness with like villainy or evil itself, right? But David, the queerness of these characters, of the marauders, 
I did not necessarily see it in a. Ne- I didn't get like negative vibes from it. Did you? No, I didn't. I'm. I'm gonna. You're right. This is a complicated conversation to have, but I'm gonna come at this from a limited perspective of a moviegoer, where you look at a lot of movies in the 70s and 80s, or at least in my estimation, and there was almost a a punk rock usage of homosexuality, where it was like you know thumbing your nose at at the status quo, at the people who would be quote unquote scared of homosexuality. So you know what. If you're going to be scared of it, we're going to make them scary. So a villain is going to embrace homosexuality or bisexuality because it makes them dangerous, because it makes them scary. But you're absolutely right. If this is the only representation of homosexuality up until then, then yeah, you're going to be left with this impression that that's all they are. And that is, you know, that does make this a little complicated because on the one hand, you would like to, as this article alludes to, you would like to at least revisit The Road Warrior, if not celebrate it for bracing that and being so open with it but on the other hand is it a little irresponsible to do i you know i think we had the same struggle with roadhouse where is the movie even bringing this to the table or or what are we bringing to the table are we meeting it more than halfway i i'm not quite sure yeah because in this movie the only characters that are presented this way are characters who have definitely they're like a you know society has been like deformed so is their homosexuality being equated to society gone wrong? I hope not. But I found a, a thread on Twitter. The tweeter's name, their handle is at Aaron Y-S. It's E-R-I-N-Y-S. And their name is Aaron, Aaron Dimbo. And this user writes, queer coding and BDSM are critical elements of the entire series, the Mad Max series. From the very first iteration, George Miller's Otto Geddon presents us with a world of warring leather daddies and power bottoms, either fighting to protect the innocent or preying on them without mercy. It works. And then in another tweet, this person says, uh, Miller cast an Australian gay icon as his police captain, and the character of Fifi McAfee is a collaboration between the actor and the director in every way, down to the costume. David, they're talking about a character from the first Mad Max movie, played by Roger Ward, who does seem to be an openly gay police captain and is not shown any sort of negative light. A lot of stuff like this we end up cutting out of episodes because it's me just like doing some liberal hand wringing, like, I hope this is okay. But I'll say this, it'd be interesting to learn more about this from a non- Mac and David perspective, I guess. (laughs) And even though it may not be perfect, it may be a little problematic. I'm going to give George Miller the benefit of the doubt, which I know we're already extending so much benefit of the doubt just by doing this movie. But David, (laughs) I hope people don't be like, oh, this is how they're kicking off Pride Month. (laughs) This is not a theme episode. Okay, we're just trying to do right by some underrepresented communities and maybe talk about movies a little bit deeper than just what's on the surface. But back to the movie. Max has indeed returned the truck and they're like, hey, so Max, you're gonna gonna drive this uh this rig, you're gonna drive this truck and help us get past the marauders. And Max is like, uh, no, I'm fucking out of here. Yeah, he made his deal. You know, he says a deal is a deal. I I made my bargain and I'm gonna hold it up. And uh this hero's taken off. It's time for him to dip. Meanwhile, you know, the the settlers are left with this truck. They've got it's all busted. It's all shot to hell. They've got 12 hours to fix it and the clock's ticking uh, and, and Max is leaving them. Cool. Yeah. And, and Papa Gallo pushes back on Max and he really lets him have it. Like, you don't believe in anything. You got nothing to look forward to. And then Max punches him. Max punches him because Papa Gallo hits a nerve. You know, he he's trying to get at what's causing Max to run away. What's what's causing Max to not stay and fight and, and, and be a human being worth a shit. And, he, and Papa Gallo hits on him. He's like, oh, did you lose family? And so Max punches him. But Papa Gallo keeps coming. He He's still like, hey, man, you're just a maggot living off of the the corpse of the old world. Like, you lost family. So what? Do you think that makes you special? I'm a very big fan of Papa Gallo in this movie. I 
you know, I can I completely understand what Mad Max is and what the Mad Max movie series is, but Papa Gallo's the the horse you bet on. This is the guy you root for. I'm mixed on Papa Gallo because I think everything you just said is correct. Yeah. I mean, like he's because in the opening of the movie, we see that Max lost his family and Papa Gallo is like, hey, look, you know, is that going to be the rest of our lives? We just mourn the people we lost. I'm actually trying, you know, to build something here and to go forward. But I do think Papa Gallo has bought into himself a little too much. But then when we see Max leaving, someone's like, he's leaving? Papa Gallo's like, yeah, he's leaving. He's fulfilled his contract. He's an honorable man. As much as Papa Gallo does not want it to happen, he accepts that it is. But David, this shot, by the way, is just another beautiful shot of Papa Gallo sitting there and like the little bit of pushing with the camera. I mean, it's crazy that this movie, which on paper is maybe dumb. This movie is maybe dumb. <laughs> but again, this movie also, the way they make it, they give a shit. They fucking give a shit. This movie is, is I like, my eyes like looking at it. I'm right there with you. Yeah, no, the there's so many shots in this movie where you catch yourself going, oh, that's really pretty. It's a funny movie, too. There's there's a moment, you know, when they're getting, Papa Gallo wants an update on the status of the truck, of the rig. And so the mechanic is diagnosing it. And he's relaying this information to his assistant to shout back at Papa Gallo. And it's going to go a little something like this. A couple of teeth off the timing gears. Got a cracked timing case color. It's broken a couple of teeth off the timing gear. Yeah, the radio's damaged the core. The radiator's damaged at the core. It's got a cracked water pump. It's got a cracked water pump. And a fractured injector line. It's got a fractured injector line. <laughs> well, what does all that mean? Yeah, okay, but what does that mean? What does that mean? 24 hours. 24 hours? They've got 12. You've got 12! Okay. And I just thought this was delightful. I thought this was a lot of fun. Yeah, the guy who plays the mechanic, is it Steven Spears is his name? Steve Spears? Steven S. Spears or something like that. But yeah, Steven J. Spears. He's definitely kind of funny in this. He's, he's definitely got a little bit of a charisma that kind of pops up from time to time. And yeah, I like that scene too. Uh, but meanwhile, you've got the Marauders outside. They're, you know, they're getting ready to approach as, as night, you know, as night falls, they're getting ready for the next day when they're going to attack. Lord Humongous is outside. He's got the prisoners strung up. Just kill them already. But he's cutting more promos. He's just, he's on the mic, just monologuing the heck out of it. Mac, I love Lord Humongous. But Max leaves the compound and drives off to the sunset because everything goes according to plan. Right, David? No, Mac. Max's departure does not go as planned as he is pursued by Wes and his gang. The gang run Max off the road, but when they go to retrieve the gasoline from Max's overturned car, Max blows it up. The gyro captain sees the explosion from afar and takes the copter out to rescue the badly injured Max. Once Max recovers, he has a change of heart and offers to drive the tanker. Yeah, this uh, this does not go for Max. I don't know what he was thinking. There's no strategy to it. He just decides to drive off and hope his super loud car doesn't attract any attention. But of course, we see Wes. He's like meditating. He's got his eyes closed. He's just focused. And then he hears the engine and it is off to the races, chasing out after him. And when Wes pursues Max, Lord Humongous does not want Wes to pursue Max. He wants Wes to fucking stay so they can try and keep watching the compound. And when Wes departs, Lord Humongous says this, you disobey me, you puppy. Which, again, I don't know what's going on there, but I love it. But this is a real short action set piece here. I don't even know if you would even call it a set piece, uh, but it is a, a quick chase. Yeah, Max is off to the races. His car is like loaded down with gasoline. He's driving this V8 interceptor. You think they're never going to see him again. But then Wes, Fast and Furious style, hits uh, some Nas, right? Some nitrous oxide. And David, I'm glad to see that Nas acting has not really improved in 30 years. Because he does the same stuff in 1981 that the Fast and Furious actors do now, 
which is whenever they hit the Nas, the Fast and Furious actors, their eyes widen and they like lean back in their chairs like, whoa, I'm going super fast. And then that's they, the same thing happened to Wes. I'm just glad that uh, they were able to save tanks of nitrous oxide in the post-apocalypse. But the Marauders run Max off the road and then they want his gas, right? His oil. And so they're, they're fucking around with his tanks. And then sure enough, Chekhov's rigged tank bomb. Max said earlier that like if you fuck with his tanks, they're rigged to blow. And sure enough, they blow. But David, right before this happens, we see one of the Marauders. He gets off his rig or his, I don't forget what he's driving. And he approaches Max and Max is like hurt. He's injured because he's just been in a car wreck. And Max is hiding behind a rock. And there to defend Max is the dog. And I'm like, oh, okay, this dog will save him. But oh no, David, we cut to a reverse over the shoulder shot from the dog of the Marauder. And then the shot pans over to where the dog is no longer in frame. And I let out an audible, oh no, the bolt leaves the crossbow. We hear the whine of the dog. They killed the fucking dog, David. Yeah, and this is the part where I go, well, this sucks. Like, that's not what I wanted. Not only does it suck, it's not fair. Dog happens to be one of the smartest and strongest creatures left in the post-apocalypse. So for it to get taken out by a marauder, it, it was very unfair. Yeah, I fucking hated it. But the exploding gas tanks kill or blow up or something, the guy who killed the dog. So instant revenge. But Max makes his way back to the compound and he's like, hey, I'll drive your truck now. And Papa Gal is like, why the change of heart? He's like, you realize you can't do it alone? And, and you know, here, David, we're, we're thinking that, yeah, okay. Maybe Max has learned his lesson. Maybe he he wants to join with people and he believes that together we're stronger than as one. However, David, no, he's not. He basically says like, no, I just, because I can't do it alone. I don't have another choice. So if you, the audience, were hoping that Max would like learn something from the beginning to end of this movie, no, he never does. He's in it for himself the whole time. There is an honesty to that, which I appreciate, but this, it, it does limit my investment in Max as it should. It's a really weak character arc when the growth that a character experiences is humility. When they're just a lone wolf, they think they've got it, and then they realize they don't. It's a Pyrrhic victory, but it is still a victory for the viewer. Yeah, it's something I think the Max Rakotansky from Fury Road, I think that Max, played by Tom Hardy, is able to have some sort of character growth, but not this Max. Nuh-uh. But David, something I, we haven't talked about at this point is the gyro captain... He does come back and, and help out the settlers. Like he helps fend off the marauders. He flies in on his helicopter. And the settlers are very impressed by the gyro pilot. But that one dude I said earlier who dressed like the general from General Insurance, he's got a daughter, a very 1980s headband wearing daughter. And at first the the gyro pilot is like, hey, we can escape me and you. And they almost do, but then she changes her mind. And you get a sense like she doesn't like this gyro pilot. She just wants to get out of this death trap. But as, as they're preparing here for the final escape or final final battle, the captain's daughter like looks over at the gyro pilot. He can't even see her. And she gives him a smile. David, the captain's daughter legit likes the gyro pilot. Yeah, but I think she, you know, she, unlike Max, is a human being that's torn with the conflict of, well, there is a better life out there for me, but I don't want to have a better life without these fellow settlers. So I felt bad for the gyro captain, but I think the the captain's I think the captain's girl had a very human moment. Yeah, I feel bad for the gyro pilot. And I feel bad because I was like, wait, why would she ever like him? He looks like a dude that would get arrested at a mall for trying to take like upskirt pictures. <laughs> but it's no fault of him. That's just how he looks. The fact that this guy's like, this guy is capable of being loved. Get out of here, movie. But, I, you know, he is, I guess. But David, enough packing, enough prepping. It's time to fucking put pedal to metal. 
Let's blow this goddamn settlement. Let's get out of here. Let's drive past the, the Marauders. It is go time. It's go time. The settlers pack up their things. They blow up the refinery behind them. The Marauders are in hot pursuit. And away we go for the final action set piece we call Road War. So, David, when the Marauders pursue the settlers now, we see that Wes, who previously disobeyed Lord Humongous, uh, Wes is now on a chain. And that chain is being held by Lord Humongous. When I saw this, I said, oh, Humongous has puppy on a leash. David, am I a creep? Am I a fucking creep, David? No, I don't think you're a creep. I just think you're a little horny. And I think, you know. But look at the evidence, David. Humongous has puppy on a leash. That's something a creep would say. Well, I mean, did you tie that cherry stem when you were saying it? (laughs) With my tongue? The very same, yes. The very same? What? (laughs) But David, as you see, uh, Max and a few others are escaping in their vehicles. Max is the one driving the tanker trunk, which we assume is full of oil or guzzoline as they're getting away in one direction we see that in another direction go the rest of the settlers in their vehicles another diversion this one oddly works though but these people love diversions and decoys yeah but it was a little disappointing oh god help me for saying this out loud but it was a little disappointing that the marauders did not go after them at all it seemed like like they were just like all right keep up if you want we're chasing the tanker Yeah, I guess this time they're like, let's do the exact same plan as last time. Let's actually be patient and wait and make sure they have taken the bait before launching our second hook. Does that metaphor work? I do not know. As the settlers leave, some marauders do rush into the compound and like, yeah, we're going to get whatever is left here. But you know what's left there, David? Some fucking explosives. Yeah, the settlers rigged this thing to go kablooey. And it does to such a degree, Mac. I marked out. I love... An explosion that covers city blocks, plural. This thing must have been the biggest explosion in Australian history. I loved it so much. The settlers were leaving this compound not because their well had gone dry. I just think they just needed to get to safety because they felt like their settlement in the face of Marauder invasion was just not sustainable. And so you have this equipment, this you know oil drilling equipment, which in the post-apocalypse, David, is not uh, cannot be like easy to come across. And the fact that they just blow it up that they're just like so willing to just blow up all this fucking shit. It makes sense though because they were able to kill some of their enemies with it. But man, it just it just sucks that it came to this. But David, that's humanity for you. You know, I, I hadn't even thought about it that way. Where like they could have just abandoned it. They could have just left it to pump whatever few gallons or whatever millions of gallons were left. But no, the idea was leave nothing behind for anybody else. And uh, these are the heroes of the movie. Yeah, it's like when an army retreats and they're like, oh, let's burn the fields. And so uh, our enemies, you know, won't be able to use these crops to uh, for their own sustenance. There's sound strategy, but also cruelty behind it. Humanity sucks. Humanity sucks. But what does not suck is this last part of the movie, Mac. This chase, it's going to last pretty much till the end. It's awesome. I was sad that I have not ever seen this on the big screen. I feel like this deserves to be... As big as you can get it, as loud as you can get it. I was genuinely worried for these stunt people, though. I actually wrote it I wrote it in my notes twice during the sequence. The first time I said, I'm worried for these stunt people. And then the second time I said, I'm a little scared for these stunt people. So uh, I hope you enjoy stunts. Yeah, David, we get some more shots of their cars here. Like they're, you know, the, these crazy cars that we're driving here in the wasteland. And David, I love them. I love these war rigs. I'm not like a car guy or a vehicle guy. I don't like mark out over cars or whatever. But the the way these things, these like mutant motor cars are just are great. Like even the one that Papa Gallo driving looks like some kind of like rocket ship on wheels. I love them. I love them. But David, the stunts in this, you are not wrong to be worried. Because there's one stunt in this movie 
where a driver of a car slams into another one and it's a marauder and the marauder goes flying and he goes like end over and like flipping through the air and it was a crazy looking shot i got a jfc out of me david a jesus fucking christ because i go jesus fucking christ was that real and so i clicked like 10 seconds back on the video because i wanted to spot the wires because the way he flips david it just it was like such a perfect spin that i was like okay surely he's on some like you know trapeze thing that's tied around his waist and that's why he's spinning. And look, they didn't have digital technology back in 1981 the way that we do now. So surely I'll be able to spot these wires. But when I paused it, David, the IMDb X-ray note that accompanies some Amazon Prime content, that X-ray note popped up and it said this. According to the trivia book Movie Mavericks by John Sandis, one of the more spectacular stunts in the film was actually a serious accident. David, you're right. One of the motorcycle riding raiders hits a car, flies off the bike, smashes his leg against the other car, and cartwheels through the air towards the camera. This was a real genuine accident. The stuntman was supposed to just fly over the car without hitting it. But the near fatal incident looked so dramatic, i.e. so cool, that it was kept in the movie. The stuntman broke his leg badly but survived. And if you look at the stuntman's body frame by frame, no thank you, through the cartwheels, you can see that one of his legs is bending in a slightly unnatural angle around the knee. (laughs) I know, this is terrible, but also, yes? And it really literally is the craziest shot because it looks like it looks like Superman's being thrown by a Phantom Zone villain. It's an end over in somersault, basically, in midair. It had to have been fake. It had to have been. But to find out it's real breaks my goddamn heart, Mac. Yeah, it feels a little different than when like Tom Cruise breaks his ankle doing a stunt that he practiced and planned. The fact that this went off the rails so badly. But you know what? I just hope that that stuntman was like, hey, uh, I'm going to imagine the stuntman's name is something really cool. Like, what would be your stuntman, stuntman name, David? Gary, but I'd say uh, it'd still be Gary, but it's Australian. But what's your last name? Probably like Rockfire or something? Or I was going to say Stonebreaker. <laughs> Geary Stonebreaker? Geary Stonebreaker. My stuntman name would be, uh, let me see, Slate Ironhands. So they come to me and they say, uh, Slate, I'm glad you're alive. Yeah, and I'm sorry that that stunt went so horribly wrong and your and your leg is now made out of spaghetti. The shot's cool though. Can we use it? And I hope that Slate is like, you know, I, I bled for that. Let's definitely use it in the movie. Because here's the, I have a story for you, David. The story is not mine, but it is my dad's. My dad was big into motorcycles growing up and he would like race them and like build them with friends and his brothers. And one time he went to some uh, like motorcycle like stunt show and in it, one of the riders had a bad fall. And as they were carrying the stunt rider off on a stretcher, the guy, uh, the PA announcer goes, ladies and gentlemen, looks like the driver's going to be all right. Round of applause. Everyone, including my dad, like, you know, gave him a round of applause. My dad found out in the paper the next day that that driver had died on impact. <laughs> they were carrying away his corpse, but they did not want to stop the show and refund people's money. So they just said, the show must go on. Hey, everyone, big thumbs up for for Geary over there, he's going to be A-OK as they dump his body into some quicklime or something. I don't know. Was he the closer? I, I, no, I think that was like the middle of the show. You'd have to ask my dad. But David, I wish I did not have another example of this, but I do. The tanker roll stunt at the end of the chase. This is also from that same IMDb x-ray. The tanker roll stunt at the end of the chase was deemed so dangerous that the stunt driver was not allowed to eat any food 12 hours before the shot in the likely event that he could be rushed into surgery. I don't know if this is real. This seems fake. Almost like kind of like when people are like, oh, my hands are registered lethal weapons. Like that kind of lie. <laughs> where it just seems like they wouldn't let me eat 12 hours for the shot because they had rushed me a surgery. 
But at the same time, uh, fuck. Let's just acquire Australia already. <laughs> I think we've got enough evidence to convict. I don't know. I don't want their animals coming after me. They got some deadly things down there. But David, one of the settlers that's that's accompanying Max on the tanker is the warrior woman. The warrior woman, by the way, David, have you ever seen a more badass person in your life? I don't think I have. She was underused in this movie. Beautiful, deadly, and stylish. I, I love the warrior woman, David. And at some point, she comes to the aid of the mechanic because the me- mechanic gets, his legs get lit on fire. And he's trying to pat out his legs where ostensibly he can't feel anything. is Because he's not really reacting like he's in pain. His legs, I guess he's paralyzed. And so he, there's no nerves. And whatever the, his level of paralysis is, he cannot feel the pain that's in his legs. He's trying to like stamp out the, the flames with his hands. But because it was like a Molotov cocktail that exploded on his legs, his hands are on fire. And so as the warrior woman goes to help the mechanic, there's a shot of the marauders. They like line up like this quadruple bolt shooting gun right at her. And I was like, no, please don't. And sure enough, they shoot her. And she fucking gets shot and she dies. And she's like hanging off of the rig, David. But she's not dead yet. She's still alive. Well, uh, we should mention she's hanging off the rig because there's barbed wire surrounding the rig. So she's t- her body is tangled up in this barbed wire. And meanwhile, the mechanic is trying to pat out his, his, the flames on his leg and trying to save her. In the process of trying to save her, they both get pulled under the truck and get run over. On the one hand, I feel bad for the mechanic and the warrior woman for these sort of unceremonious deaths. And they didn't really factor into like the ultimate victory of the mission. But at the same time, this movie made the best use of minor characters in getting thrills out of them. Like for a tertiary character like the mechanic to be in this moment of action like i you know on the other side of that coin i do lament the fact that warrior woman was woefully underused in this movie i remember at the first time i saw her in the movie i was like i can't wait for this model to be everywhere in this movie like how do you not use her but this is a great sequence for her i just i wish she had more stuff in this movie the mechanic is even dressed for battle like he is dressed like one of the marauders now he's like wearing some like leather studded stuff but David, the moment where the mechanic and the warrior woman get pulled down under the wheels of one of the Marauders' vehicles, I don't have a term for this yet, but it was the opposite of a markout moment. Just the way their bodies were unceremoniously ground up. I don't know. Do we have a fun way to describe a cold feeling of despair that like lives in the pit of my stomach? I don't, I don't know. We have a wacky term for that yet, David, but that's what I got. A bum out moment? Yeah. Yeah, David, I bombed. It was, it was a bum. I totally got bummed out. It was fucking harsh. Yeah, I hear you on that one. But to counteract that, you have the feral kid who's hitched a ride onto the tanker and is now riding along with Max. And he makes his way into the cabin. Max begrudgingly lets him in. We're experiencing the chase through the eyes of the feral kid. And his enjoyment of all the carnage going on around him is infectious. Because eventually we get to the point where it's Max still driving the rig. And he's basically fighting off every oncoming marauder. There's marauders on top of the cab. There's, you know, Wes is coming from from the grill. And the feral kid is just eating this all up. And by proxy, I was eating it all up too. I wish the feral kid had done a little bit more though. He kind of just was like chomping on people. I wanted to see some more inventive fighting the way that I felt when I first saw the feral kid throw that boomerang. But at some moment, Lord Humongous says like, hey, go after his tires, like pop his tires, meaning Max's tires. And the tent leather reaches out and he tries to do something to the tires. I don't really know what he was trying to do, but he he makes a face like, whoop. And then he just gets like ground under the wheels. And it was a slow motion shot of the guy's motorcycle 
going under the tires and getting crunched. And David, I guess I'm a, I got a crunch fetish because it was my second markout moment. Are you serious? I love that crunch. Well, no, I'm glad you caught that because I actually, I wasn't sure I had made a note of it and then I deleted it because I thought I was being stupid. But in the moment, I thought that the guy was reaching out to like light a cigarette with his, with the tires. But to know that he was given the order to like damage the tires and pop the tires. Okay. That makes more sense. I am dumb. Well, if you are dumb, because I rewatched it a couple times because I like the crunch but I still never figured out what he was doing because if anything, it looks like he had a very small item in his hand. I was like, mm-hmm. is that a uh, a little like thing that will depress the air gauge of the tire? Or it almost looked like he had a key. Like he's like, I'll use a key to pop this thick as fuck tire. So lighting a cigarette makes more sense because I still do not know what he was fucking doing. He just was, he wasn't paying attention because he got crunched by the wheels, but uh, confusing. But then Feral Kid and Wes end up in a standoff they're both standing on top of the rig it's feral kid you know versus wes how's this thing gonna go what is what does max do here so max decides i'm gonna grab onto the feral kid's ankle i'm gonna make sure he's okay and then i'm gonna slam on the brakes and so that's gonna send wes flying but meanwhile you've also got lord humongous tailgating the tanker and he still has the prisoners at the front of his car so when the tanker slams on the brakes those prisoners eat the back of that tanker, and I had a JFC moment because it's very graphic. It's it's just basically these two human-sized mummies full of jello, and they smash into the tanker and just goo goes flying everywhere. Yeah, you kind of wonder, like, oh, why do they still have these prisoners? Are they even gonna come back into play in this movie? And yeah, they could come back into play because they're gonna get crunched. David, I got I'm on a crunch hot streak. That was my third markout moment. When those <laughs> When Wes falls to what we think is his death and those hostages like, and they just get slammed and yeah, smooshed into the back of the tanker. I marked out. I loved it. It was intense. But there's a moment here also when this is all going on and the feral kid is sitting in the cabin with Max where we catch a look of Papa Gallo. He's, He's riding alongside Max in the tanker and he sees the feral kid in the cab And I I don't know if I'm making this up or if I'm reading something into it, but he Papa Gallo gives Max a look like, what the fuck? Like, what is the frail kid doing in there? Mac, do you happen to have a a thought? What is up with this look? I didn't get it because, yeah, he's like, hey, frail kid, jump into my car. What are you doing? We've won is what he says. And I I was like, what what do you mean we've won? Lord Humongous is right there because a beat later, Papa Gallo gets uh, speared by like a harpoon. Like a, it looks like a, it looks like the kind of, um, like an, almost like a trident. It almost looks like a weapon that Lord Triton would have, or, you know, whoever the Poseidon or who, is there another King of the Sea that I'm forgetting? Like Namor, uh, or, or Namor. I don't, I don't know anymore, but yeah, he's like, we've won. And then he dies. So I don't, I don't get it. And then I guess we find out later what he means. But in that moment, I didn't know what the fuck was up with Papa Gallo. Okay, and I'm, I'm not even sure if what's coming up answers it, but we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. But meanwhile, while this is all going on, we check in on the gyro captain. He's being a real hero here. He's, he's flying the gyrocopter. He's kind of keeping a bird's eye view on all the settlers as they go away. But Humongous catches a look at him and shoots him out of the sky. And you see the gyro captain tumbling to the ground and the gyro crashes into the ground, but it doesn't blow up. And in this moment, I laughed out loud because this has to be the only crash in this movie that does not blow up. And I, and I thought there was something very funny about that. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, it's like a harsh crash, but you're like, he, he might have lived off of that. And then honestly, I don't remember how it happens, David. But at some point, 
Lord Humongous and the Tinker are playing chicken. They're driving straight at each other. And Lord Humongous has his weapon. And Max, there was an, an, an accident, I guess, when all of his shotgun shells went like flying. And there's like one more shotgun shell. It's in the hood of the car now. We think Wes is dead, right? But then it turns out Wes has just been hanging on the grill, the front of the rig this whole time. And so Wes pops back up. And now like Wes is on the hood of the the tanker and he's like menacing feral kid and Max. But David, Lord Humongous is still driving straight for that tanker. And so now we have a head-on collision and at the front of the tanker is fucking Wes. These cars are driving at each other. What happens? They get smashed. Uh, Wes gets sandwiched in between Humongous and the tanker. Humongous's vehicle gets obliterated. It no longer exists. It was... It was like watching the Beverly Hillbillies car, you know, with all the wood paneling and stuff, just get blown up. I marked out. Hell yeah. Destroy them all. Yeah, this moment was great. We were building up towards this is the final fight, the final collision, the final blow. You know, if if these cars are fighting each other, this is the final auto punch that gets land. And you're right. Lord Humongous plays chicken with Max and Lord Humongous's car loses. And the fact that Wes and Humongous just get like smooshed together in this final moment, it's great. Uh, and it's, yes, I marked, I marked out again. And Max's tanker, even though it wins that collision, quote unquote, it still loses. It like rolls over. This is the stunt that I guess the driver couldn't eat uh, for in case he had to go into surgery. As the tanker flips on its side, its contents are leaking out of it. And David, this tanker is not full of oil. It's full of sand. It's full of dirt. This tanker is not full of oil. So Matt, keep in mind... I'm watching this movie for the first time, and for the most part, I've lived my life spoiler-free of the ending of Road Warrior, so I did not know this was coming. So when that tanker flips, the wave of emotions, the variety of emotions, I was very upset, I was very sad that uh, the tanker flipped and the settlers wouldn't get to keep the gasoline, I was overjoyed when I saw that there was dirt, because then I started connecting the dots to a few moments earlier where where Papa Gallo gives Max that what-the-fuck look. Watching this now, I'm interpreting this and wondering if Papa Gallo's thinking, hey, what the fuck do you have the feral kid on that truck for? That's a nowhere mission. I guess what I'm getting at is, Mac, did did Max know that he was a decoy? When we first see the Tinker is full of dirt, I was like, oh man, what a plan. Good job, Max. Good job, settlers. You did it. But then when Max you know, frees himself from the wreck, with a shocked look on his face, he sticks his hand under the place where the dirt is pouring out of the tanker. Max did not know that that tanker was full of dirt. And that was a wow moment for me. The fact that the tanker is full of sand and that Max did not know, that's a twist. That is like kind of, and you know what? It's a perfect twist for Max because it's a fuck you to that guy and he fucking deserved it. I almost marked out because there's a moment here where as we're coming up here towards the end, Max has one last moment with the gyro captain. They sort of exchange pleasantries and goodbyes as the gyro captain goes off to his new life. But the gyro captain gives a real subtle look, almost like, well, well, well. Like, you live a life like a dick, you're going to get treated like a dick. And I almost marked out at the satisfaction of knowing that this guy kind of got his comeuppance. Yeah, the fact that the settlers were like, okay, this guy can die. It's fine because we'll live because of it. it. It's a... I don't know. It's a deviousness that cuts at some of the uncomfortable truths about human nature. (laughs) Oh, shit. Am I high? Uh, But at the same time, it just worked. Because look, you didn't even need that for the movie. Max could have known 
And he could have like had a smirk on his face like, ha you idiots. Because some marauders survived the attack and they see that the oil tanker is just full of dirt. And they're like, fuck. And then they get out of there. So Max totally could have been like, how about that? How about dim apples? But the fact that Max did not know. Wow. I did not remember that. And because of it, uh, I didn't see it coming and it, and it got me. It was great. But Mac, with Humongous and Wes dead courtesy of a tanker truck to the face, what remains of the gang of marauders disperse when it is revealed that the tanker is full of dirt while the gasoline is riding safely with the settlers on their way to a new life? Oh, that's where it is. <laughs> the gyro captain becomes the new leader of the settlers. The feral child grows up to be our narrator. And Max Rokitansky grows up to be Mel Gibson, gigantic piece of shit. Yeah, the VO, satisfying. Bodie goes, the gyro captain's our new leader. I was like, well, what the fuck? <laughs> like... Again, maybe I'm just biased against this weird looking dude. I'm going to come to his defense because, you know, we said it from the onset when we first met him. He is a cunning guy. I just happen to think he met the most cunning guy in all of the Australian Adback to get promoted from number two to number one. I, I, I'm for it. Remember we were talking about Pitch Black and you were like, all my problems with Pitch Black were solved. It's the sequel. It's a movie called Riddick. The problems with this movie are solved with Mad Max Fury Road. Even the fact of the spinoff, because like, what is the the next movie coming? It's about uh, Furiosa, right? Charlie Theron's character from that movie. Because if you look at Mad Max Fury Road, who's the most interesting character in that movie? It's not Mad Max. And in this movie, the most interesting character, again, is not Mad Max. At this point, it's Feral Kid. And so the fact that Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome is more of this Max fucker and not we don't get to see the adventures of Feral Kid, I feel robbed by it. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with that, but uh, I do know where this movie's going, David into the books because that is the end of the road for the road warrior all right david how many mark out moments did you have how many moms in this movie i had three mark out moments i had a few jfc's uh this movie is a is a visceral experience how about you mac i had at least one jfc i had four mark out moments and i had three jwg eyes for jesus we get it for the sexual assault david is this someone's favorite movie Heck yeah. I think this is the kind of movie that someone has memorized. This came out at a perfect time for people to just get obsessed with it and watch it in a loop on VHS. I, I, I'll bet. I'll bet. How about you, Mac? Oh, yeah, totally. Even though I think Fury Road is an improvement on this movie in every way, there's something to be said about the grit that like 70s and 80s movie had have before digital effects came in. And this movie has got grit in spades. So yeah, I think it's definitely someone's favorite movie. And, you know, let's not discount, David. There's a lot of, you know, action movie fans that are also Mel Gibson shithead fans. So, you know, these shitheads like things, too, even though their heads are full of shit. So they, they may like this movie for that reason, because Mel Gibson's a shit. All right, David, time for some punch-ups. David, we're the ultimate script doctors. Everybody knows that. How would you fix this movie? How would you punch it up? I got a lot of little ones. I enjoyed this movie overall, but there's tiny things you could fix here and there. Punch-up one. Hey, assholes, don't kill the dog. We have no reason to kill the dog. Agreed. Another punch up, a little more Mad Max. You know, I think Mel Gibson plays this, or I think maybe the character of Max Rakitansky in general is a little too laconic, is a little too laid back maybe. Like when he does catch up with the with the rapist and he hits him with the bolt cutter, that's cool. Keep using those bolt cutters. Like, let's start taking off some appendages. You know, let's really see how psycho you are, Mad Max. Agreed. Punch-ups, we're in sync, two for two. Another one, then. Let's go three for three. What's up with this warrior woman? Virginia Hay is a captivating on-screen presence in the little amount of time that we spent with her. I thought she would have been a perfect 
you know, as much as I don't like forcing romantic leads on characters and certainly not giving that to Mel Gibson, I mean, who wouldn't have wanted to see Max Rakitansky and Warrior Woman go to town on each other? I don't. I just want to see more of Warrior Woman. We're a little out of sync on this one, but again, I think this is something they fix in Fury Road, where it's like, oh hey, let's this more interesting female warrior character and and uh, Furiosa. Let's not just like discard her at a moment's notice. Also, I tried really hard, David, because the actor's name is Virginia Hay, not to say Virginia Hay there. And so I just want I want some recognition <laughs> that I never once said that. I never once said it. You're a good boy. My my last thing. It's kind of the overarching punch up. Clean it up. You know. We had issues with the more problematic elements of this movie. Movies know how to convey terror without being terrible. We make them good now, like I said. And I, you know, I say this with the caveat of knowing that every issue I had with this movie, like you've been saying all along, gets fixed, improved, and excels in Mad Max Fury Road. I know George Miller has better movies in him, so uh, I, I'm okay with these punch-ups. You know what? Oh, gosh. My final punch up. This is going to be the elephant in the room. Hey, man, let's just AI Tom Hardy into the role of Mad Max already. We don't need Mel Gibson. This is not a Mel Gibson movie. This is a Mad Max movie. Let's put Mad Max in it. David, as bad an idea as that is, I have the exact same idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's fucking George Lucas special edition. Get that fucking piece of shit anti-Semite uh, Mel Gibson out of there and put in judo champion and dog lover Tom Hardy. A lot of good punch-ups there, David. I wholeheartedly agree with them. A few more. Australia, David, if I remember correctly, is not an all-white continent. <laughs> so the fact that only white people survive the post... Let's diversify it up a little bit. You know what I mean? Also, humongous. Great villain. David, his giant, veiny head. I don't know what's up with me if I'm going through crunch phase. I wanted to see that head smashed like a melon. I wanted to see someone like stomp on his head... And like brains come out of there the same way that brain came, like got stomped to pieces in Robot Cop 2. I just, I wanted to see that thing crushed. I don't know what it's about. His thick, veiny coconut. But I wanted to see that coconut milk. Ugh, that's gross. <laughs> also, another punch up, the settlers, when, give them something more to hold on to. Like their mission, their dream didn't really feel that substantial. Like when the captain, the guy looks like the general from General Insurance. He's like, he's way we're going to. And he holds up a bunch of like weird postcards. And they're like, yeah, that's where we're going, says Papa Gallo. I kind of wanted them to be like, no. Like the way in Children of Men, David, they were like, oh, we need to get this uh, baby to this like project, this offshore project that's fighting to reclaim the species. If Papa Gallo had been like, no, we were sent here by this last civilization, you know, like Zion or whatever, uh, like in the Matrix, like just I needed them to be anchored more and just a little bit more meat, if that makes sense. I hear you. Yeah, that makes sense. Final punch up. Give the feral kid more to do. I want to see that feral kid's body count in the double digit at least. I want to see that double digit, like a double quarter, 50, bo 50 bodies, just, just paving the, the outback with the bones of these marauders. Just let that feral kid go nuts. Oh, I'd love to see him chomp somebody. You telling me Hot uh, Topic couldn't sell a t-shirt with the feral kid's blood-stained face on it? David, if you could have him chomp someone, but then also somehow crunch him, oh, that's my sweet spot thumping my leg on, a, on the ground like a dog. <laughs> but anyway, David, please, if you will, follow me into the Punch Mountain video store. David, we have three copies of the Road Warrior to stock in this video store. And as you know, this is an all-action video store. So what subsections of action would you stock this in? What shelves would you put these copies? First copy is going in car action. This is maybe the best car movie we have on the mountain so far. I'm going to say yes. Yeah. Second copy, Australian action. If we let it, 
this category could get bananas. And the third copy, I'm split. I could go either cult action or bar action. I'm gonna go more towards bar action. I think this is more so a movie that benefits from, from playing in a bar with the sound off. I think Mad Max is more of a cult movie if that's if I'm allowed to split hair. So I'm gonna put this in bar action. You wouldn't give George Miller his own shelf oh. section. I mean, when um, you know Furiosa comes out, that'll be five movies in the Mad Max franchise. Which I mean, again, I'm not here to celebrate, you know, uh, Gibson. But does he have any more action movies? Well, you know, I mean, shit, this should be in franchise anyway. So I mean, I, I think his only action movies are these Mad Max films, unless you count. Babe 2 or Happy Feet or, uh, you know, Lorenzo's Oil. Did he do that? I don't know. As as uh, action movies, which I, I don't think you should. David, I would take a copy and I would stick it in a section I'd call Leather Daddies. Uh, just because mm-hmm. there's a lot of Leather Daddies in this movie. I think Blade could fit up there because Blade's definitely a Leather Daddy. Any movie where there's a lot of leather being slapped around, I think uh, this movie would fit nicely on that shelf. Very much so. Yeah, right alongside The Matrix. Absolutely. Yeah, and I would go ahead and I'd leather line that shelf. Yeah, no kink shaming here at the Punch Mountain Video Store. But speaking of shame, David, it's time to talk about honor. Specifically, David, the honor of being placed on Punch Mountain is now time to reveal the ranking of The Road Warrior on Punch Mountain itself, the definitive ranking of action movies. But just a reminder, David, on the summit right now, uh, one through four, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Raid 2, The Matrix, and Jurassic Park. That's at the top of the mountain. At the bottom of the mountain, Passenger 57, Deadly Prey, Poseidon Adventure, and David even past the bottom of the mountain, out there in the wastelands next to a dead kangaroo, the very bottom position on the mountain. It's Chappy at coming in at number 30. So, David, before we reveal the mountain's rankings, where would you personally, David Hotta, rank the Road Warrior? Oh, boy. Um, Let's eliminate the top just because it's not perfect and there's some issues with it. But short of that, pretty high, if that makes sense. This is, you know, we were concerned. We were worried talking about a Mel Gibson movie. Mel Gibson's a non-factor in this. I know it's still, I know that by talking about it, you are sort of indirectly celebrating him, but I think we've done a pretty decent job of of making the case that this movie is an awesome action movie without all of that unnecessary entanglements. Uh, it's a complicated conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like when, when, what we know now about Kanye West, like looking back at some of his lyrics, which maybe seem like tongue in cheek to some people at the time, it's like, oh no, I don't. Like maybe the levels of misogyny that are in his songs are not there for jokes, people. But there's nothing in this that gets shown in a different light other than Mel Gibson himself. But aside from Mel Gibson, this movie does a lot of interesting things. You know, the queer coding, the the presentation of what the apocalypse is going to look like. There's a lot of interesting stuff here. I don't want to bury it just because of one person, but one person's not going to help it either. Yeah, there's a purity to this movie. It's it's very stripped down in its action. And, and that's what I mean by purity, not like uh, sort of like an angelic quality. Just as like, there's not a lot of additives, this thing. It's it's action and it does it hard and fast and really well. And yeah, it is definitely like a capital A action movie. And it does some stuff that, again, today still feels fucking awesome. It doesn't feel like a movie made in 1981. It definitely also does not feel like a movie made though in 2023. But the other counterweight or counterbalance to this movie is Fury Road. As good as this movie is, it still almost feels like kind of a warm-up for Fury Road. And then, of course, Mel Gibson's in it, too. It, it is, it's a hard movie to rank. I'm glad we don't have to do it, David. I'm glad it's up to the mountain. Look out, David. If you hear that sound? Those are the boulders falling from Punch Mountain, because revealing the name 
of Road Warrior there is appearing in the golden letters. We see its position on the mound. It is now number 10. So that makes number eight, Prey, number nine, RRR, number 10, Road Warrior, and now at 11, Roadhouse. So back-to-back roads there. I, I'm, I'm cool with that ranking. I'm super okay with that ranking. This was a challenge. You know, it had its issues, but I think we smoothed over those issues. I think we were able to talk about this as an action movie, as a killer action movie, and most importantly, maybe, as a preamble to Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, I think there might be some purists, whatever the fuck that means, uh, out there that might rank this movie higher. But I look at the movies that are above it, and it may seem surprising, you know, like, oh, how did that rank higher than than Road Warrior. As gritty as this movie is, there's also something to be said for some dazzle and for some wonder and for some characters that I, I, I'm a little bit more engaged with. But again, if you want to make an argument for like, okay, out of all the movies in the top 10, which one would you call art? I would say Road Warrior. So it's it's a very interesting movie. But yeah, but especially as a setup to Fury Road, I'm, I, I honor the mountain at all times. And of course, I respect its current position. Oh, David, you hear that horn? Oh, no, my gyrocopter. Yes, David. Well, while that is also the exact same sound of a gyrocopter, it is also the horn calling us to action. On this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're spotlighting the Anti-Defamation League, a leading anti-hate organization. The ADL's timeless mission is to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. Today, ADL continues to fight all forms of anti-Semitism and bias using innovation and partnerships to drive impact. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to the Anti-Defamation League. Also, for every review we get on Apple Podcasts, we'll add $1 to our donation. We just got one, so we are now up to 102 for this month. Fatten it up, guys. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on air. For more information about the Anti-Defamation League or to donate directly to them, visit ADL.org. And folks, that'll do it for another week of Punch Mountain. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac stand-up. Next week, it's episode 30. It's the last of our Mountain Slayer picks and it's directed by Akira Kurosawa. From 1954, we're watching The Seven Samurai. Mac, you looking forward to that one? Oh, damn. Are we some art house nerds all of a sudden? Let's go, Eggheads. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.